Welcome to episode 41 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. It's been a while since the last episode, and that's because I was out of the country. First in Israel while President Biden was there, then in the south of France for a bit over a week, and then a final couple of days in Luxembourg visiting very old friends. What I want to talk about with you today is very fresh in my mind because it has to do with a region you've heard something about before, which was a papal state called the Comte Venaissin in the south of France. Today, what used to be the Comte for several centuries is now largely coterminous with the département called the Vaucluse, and the capital of that département is Avignon. And you will all have heard about the Avignon papacy, and you will mostly all know that the largest and by far most impressive building in Avignon is the so-called Palais des Papes, the Palace of the Popes. So a bit of a spoiler alert, um, I used to live and work in this region in the mid-80s, so let's say roughly speaking 35 years ago, and I lived technically not in the Vaucluse, but in the Département du Gard, which is right across the Rhone River. However, I could walk from my house to my office in the Prefecture in the heart of Avignon in less than 20 minutes. So these départements don't really have borders. You don't feel even like you're crossing from one state into another. But they do have very strong identities and separate cultural traditions, slightly different accents, different food and drink specialties. And we would have stayed in Avignon because it's a city I know well and love dearly. But the entire month of July is devoted to an international music festival and the city becomes horrifically crowded. Hotels mark up their prices by five or six hundred percent. It's very hard to get a place in a restaurant or a cafe. It's just really not comfortable to visit Avignon in the month of July. Nonetheless, we walked through it one afternoon and we're just elbow to elbow with throngs of people from all over the world. And we were also in this region during an unusual heat wave. Temperatures over 100 are not common in continental Europe and particularly not in Avignon. But pretty much every day that we were in the Vaucluse, the temperature was somewhere between 100 and 110, which makes it awkward to walk up the very steep hills on top of which all the villages are built. So usually a village sort of sprawls downhill from what used to be an important castle or a fort or a major church at the very top of the hill. And you can't drive all the way to the top because there's no parking there. And so you park at the bottom and walk up as far as you can. In my case, (laughs) when the temperature was 106, that wasn't very far. And I would stop under a shady tree and tell the much younger friends that I was with, go ahead to the top without me, take good pictures, and I'll be waiting here when you get down. And generally speaking, in 20 or 30 minutes, they who were younger and far more fit than I came down and rejoined me and we would then sit in a cafe and have a drink. But we spent a little over a week in the Vaucluse and very close parts of neighboring départements. And there are a few impressions I would like to share with you, some of which have to do specifically with Jewish history and Jewish places worth visiting, 
and some of which have to do with just the region in general and why it's so appealing to so many visitors. And by the way, while we were there, in parentheses, it seemed like 50% of the population of Belgium was also there because thousands and thousands of cars with Belgian license plates were filling every single parking lot. And we spent a lot of time in parking lots because, as I said, you can't drive to the tops of these villages and at the bottom, you have to pay to park. So we were quite well aware of the demographics of who else was visiting by car. So a couple of specific notes to get us started. Knowing that Avignon would be impossibly crowded and that the hotels would be horrifically overpriced compared to what they would be a month earlier or a month later, we chose to stay in a secondary city called Cavaillon, which is actually much closer to the Marseille airport. In fact, it's less than half an hour from the airport to the hotel we chose in the center of Cavaillon, which turned out to be a very convenient place to stay for the week for many, many reasons, which I'll get to very quickly. So Cavaillon is basically a market town, and it is famous at least all over France, if not all over Europe, for the melons it produces, which are called the melons of Cavaillon. And they are like slightly smaller than cantaloupes, slightly darker orange, much sweeter than cantaloupes, and... The hotel prided itself on sort of a homemade jam that they made out of these melons that was absolutely delicious. But also on the breakfast buffet, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, were gorgeous apricots at sort of the height of the season. We saw fields full of apricot trees where most of the apricots looked more than ripe enough for picking. Perhaps some were so ripe that they would just fall off. But the ones at the hotel were literally as big as my fists. And it was quite an impressive sight to see an apricot that was the size of most grapefruits. And they were delicious, as was all the food we had in Provence, frankly. I mean, it was all prepared with ingredients that were from 50 meters or 100 meters away from where we were eating them. And, you know, there's nothing better than eating local foods and drinking local wines. And just to comment on the prices, and this has nothing to do with the recent surge in the value of the dollar, which vis-a-vis the euro, that's only like a 2 or 3% change. But if you're in a small town in France and you don't seek out a six-star luxury hotel with white glove service and white linen tablecloths. If you just go to like the Café du Village, and in many villages, there's only one cafe. There's really only one place to eat. And if you go to that place, you'll see on a chalkboard the specialties of the day. And there will always be a three-course menu, a starter, a main course, and dessert, where you will have some choice between like three or four items for each course. And generally speaking, the price will be between 25 and $30 for a really excellent three-course meal, which just can't be beat. I mean, you never see that anywhere in the U.S. And then you can add to that the benefit of drinking local wines. This region produces some of the world's greatest wines, especially wines that are well-suited to hot weather. So white wines and rosé wines, and they're not offended if you ask for ice because they know Americans are crazy. So you can get a bottle of wine in a restaurant, not in a liquor store, not in a wine shop, but in a restaurant for $20 or $25 a bottle. I think the most expensive bottle we saw 
in most places where we ate was like $30 for a bottle of wine, which, you know, is produced from vineyards that you can see straight down the hill. So that's a pretty amazing feeling. Cavaillon turned out to be interesting not only because of its melons and because it was surrounded by apricot orchards, but also because it is home to what is now officially called the Museum of the History of the Jews in the Contat, the Contat Venaissin. And you heard about this in some detail in the one of the episodes on France that I did earlier in this series. But suffice it to say that Cavaillon was one of the four so-called Kehilot Kedoshot, the holy congregations of Jews, in what was historically the Contat and is now the Vaucluse. The other three being Carpentras, Avignon, and Lille-sur-la-Sorgue. So Cavaillon has probably the second oldest synagogue of those four cities, but it is not a synagogue that is currently in use. There's not enough Jews to make a minion left in Cavaillon. They have moved mostly to bigger cities, or at least to bigger Jewish communities. But there is a fabulous tiny museum in and around, in some adjacent buildings, the very old synagogue from the 15th century. And unlike some other Jewish museums in France, this museum can be visited every day of the week except for Tuesdays and Saturdays. And you just have to go to the office where there's a very knowledgeable guide who's multilingual and who charges a nominal sum, like $5 a person or something, for a tour. And the tour was so interesting that I want to share some aspects of it with you. So first of all, the guide takes this collection of extremely oddly shaped keys, some of which are like a foot long, some of which look like opened up cans of soup. I mean, none of them looks like a key that we would use to open a door or a car for that matter. And she goes out and opens a gate, a very heavy gate, that's at street level, and then you climb up a very, very steep flight of stairs, and you're in a tiny courtyard, and then she opens another gate, and behind that gate, a door. And each of these gates and doors required a different key, of course. And then she lets you into what is maybe the smallest synagogue I've ever seen. And it's certainly the most unusually designed synagogue that I have ever seen because it corresponds to the traditions that developed specifically in this part of what is now France, but was what was then a papal state. So in the main sanctuary, there's probably only room for 25 or 30 people maximum to stand if they're packed together like sardines. And the walls are mostly wood with carved wood ornamentation, often covered by gilt or by pastel paints, usually blue, actually, blue or beige. And the effect is is stunning. And then you look up where you expect the women's section to be upstairs, and there's these steep spiral staircases that do lead up to an upper floor. But that actually is where the rabbis, the cantors, the officers of the congregation, collectively known as the clay Kodesh, that's where they would stand and where the Torah was chanted from, etc., etc. So when I asked this very knowledgeable guide, like, where's the women's section? She said, ah, wait, that's our next stop. So then she 
locks all these various doors and gates, and we descend this very steep stairway to the street and go around the corner and enter on street level into a much bigger room. I mean, probably 10 times the size of the synagogue itself. And this was where the women sat during services. And there was a little hole by which they could hear what was going on, but couldn't really see very much because it was directly above them. But also in that room was a mikvah, which is a ritual bath used by traditional Jews for a long list of purposes, and also a communal matzah oven, which in the old world, at least, when most people didn't buy commercially made matzah because it wasn't available, communities had community ovens where everybody could bake matzah under somebody's supervision. And this synagogue was no exception. That was just part of it. So this lower area that's quite large is really the museum of Jewish life in the region. And there's, of course, a bookstore and a souvenir shop and whatever. But, you know, scattered over four or five buildings was the center, the heart of Jewish life of what was once a very crowded ghetto. And maybe the most interesting thing about this synagogue in Cavaillon was that it was partially built with money donated by the Pope himself, because that gave him some say over the lives of the Jews under his authority, the Pope's Jews. And, you know, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch. So in exchange for the Pope's financial contributions to the synagogue, Jews agreed to go and listen once a week to a sermon specifically designed for them in a church around the corner. And this was the Catholic Church's chance, as they conceived it, to finally talk some sense into these stubborn Jews who maintain their traditions against all odds for thousands of years. We had a much less positive experience in Carpentras, which is a bigger city, had a much bigger Jewish community, and has the oldest synagogue in France that is still in use. It dates back to 1351, and the only thing it has in common with the synagogue in Cavaillon is the inscription over the front door, which says, Zehashar Lashem Tzadikim Yavo This is the gateway to the Holy One. Righteous people shall enter through it. So this is a line from the book of Psalms, and it's odd that it was the one point in common between these two synagogues. Now, this was about the 10th time, roughly speaking, in 35 years that I tried to visit the synagogue of Carpentras, and every single time there was some reason why I wasn't allowed to visit. In this case, it was a woman standing in front saying, we have guided tours that are operating twice today, one at 10.30 in the morning, which is finishing up right now, and one at 2.30 this afternoon, and they're both completely booked, and you can't join them, and you can't just peer in without a guide. I suggest you go online and try to book something for next Tuesday or Wednesday. Well, this was a Friday, and there was no chance we were going to go back to Carpentras. But from the outside, this was a much bigger synagogue than the one we found in Cavaillon. And also, it was, I wouldn't say necessarily more centrally located. Both these synagogues are in the historic hearts of their respective towns. But in Cavaillon, the synagogue was really in the middle of a very busy square where the weekly market is held, an important tradition in the south of France. And the square on which it's found is called the Square of the Jews, also in Provençal. 
And what was interesting to me is this is presumably the most well-known synagogue in France, and it's certainly the oldest, and it occupies an extremely central location. However, I didn't have a map or a guidebook with me, and I was close. I knew that I was in the right vicinity, but I didn't know exactly where the synagogue was. And my memory wasn't good enough to remember times in the past that I was there. So I got actually to within a block of it. But then I asked a young French couple who were locals, and I could tell that they were locals. I said, do you know where the synagogue is? And they said, no, but we can find out very quickly. And they Googled it. And they said, oh, it's like 50 yards away from us. We'll, we'll walk you there. And by the way, we never knew that there was a synagogue in Carpentras. So I told them a little bit about the history of the synagogue in their own town. They were amazed and delighted to learn, like, how can a foreigner know this? And I was frustrated because, once again, I got to see it from the outside, but have still to penetrate those doors. Maybe I'm not righteous enough to enter them. Not really sure. So the other two of the remaining four communities are Lille-sur-la-Sorgue, where pretty much all that's left of the Jewish presence is a worn down, not very well tended cemetery on the outskirts of town. And in Avignon, there is a synagogue that's very central. It's sort of midway between the main square that has the Palace of the Popes and the Town Hall and the Prefecture and all kinds of official buildings and a marketplace, which is maybe half a mile away where they sell, you know, fruits and vegetables and everything you'd find in a market. And midway through that walk is something called the La Place de Jérusalem, Jerusalem Square. And on that place is a synagogue that was actually built in the 19th century, but on the site of a much, much older synagogue. So Jews have been occupying that part of Avignon for many centuries. Now, there's an interesting tie-in right now between the last episode we did, which was on Algeria, and some of the recent episodes on Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, whatever, and this episode about the four holy congregations, because Provence has changed enormously since I was last there 35 years ago. And one of the ways in which it's changed, there are many ways. It has vegan restaurants now. It has sushi places now. It has all kinds of things that were unthinkable 35 years ago, with the possible exception of Avignon. But certainly in the smaller places, you wouldn't have dreamed of even asking about these things. Now they're commonplace. But what's also commonplace now is large groups of people, I would say possibly more than 50% of the people in the street, who are speaking Arabic in public and who are visibly immigrants from Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and who have arrived within the past 50 years. And as far as I can tell, they only became visible within the last 35 years. And it's interesting to watch the interactions between these Arabic-speaking North Africans who have become French citizens and more, let's say, people from families that have been citizens of France for a longer time. So that not only is French their native tongue, it's often their only tongue, but also their religion is Catholicism, even if they're not necessarily very practicing or very devout. So there is this sort of social, cultural tension throughout this region, which doesn't in any way detract from how beautiful and peaceful the region seems, especially in the smaller villages where you can walk around for a whole day and hardly see any sign of life. You don't feel like you're disturbing anyone. There's no traffic. There's no pedestrians. 
and you go to the one cafe in town and the service is excellent and the food is excellent, but you wonder, apart from the summer when tourists come from the north for the sun and the beauty and the delicious food, like how do these little cafes and restaurants stay in business all year? It's, it's an eternal mystery to me. In any case, I've enjoyed sharing a little bit of my recent trip with you, and I hope you enjoyed this walk down memory lane for me into the small villages and towns of Provence, and particularly the four holy congregations of Jews who once formed the backbone, certainly commercially, of this region. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.